The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We pick up our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 36. I'm going to read on down to uh, verse 42 this morning, but we'll really only focus on verses 36 through 38. Luke writes as Jesus speaks, and here's what he said. He said, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, uh, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray together. God, we come before your, your word this morning with humble hearts. We come as the sick who are coming to the great physician. We come understanding that there are things in us that are wrong that need to be healed. And we come to you because you are the great physician who knows all things and diagnoses our condition perfectly every single time. And your word is your great diagnostic tool. And so this morning as we come before you and you bring your tool to bear in our lives, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive the diagnosis and that you would draw us to the cure. For we pray it in your holy name. Amen. Well, for the most part, as we've been working our way through these first six chapters, chapters of Luke's gospel, I've enjoyed the journey. As we've gotten up to chapter 6 here in this uh, section on the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know about you, but I found it a little less enjoyable and a lot more painful. I have been smarting, if you will, to use that word, since last Sunday still, from the text that we looked at together about what it means to love your enemies, to do good to those who mean evil for you, what it looks like to give and to go beyond just the, the resistance to retaliate, but to actively take a step and reach out in goodness to those who mean evil. Uh, very, very difficult, very, very challenging values to put into practice, really impossible apart from the Spirit of God. And I've been reflecting on that last week and this week still can't quite shake it off and don't feel like I 
fully measure up even close in that regard and pray for God's grace. And so this week I was looking for a little reprieve, to be honest with you, and found none whatsoever when we come to the text that we're in. For it is every bit as painful. I, I'd been having some problems with my, uh, my shoulder the last few weeks, and I'd gone to the doctor a week and a half or so ago, and he said, I think you need to go see a physical therapist, and I want you to go see this person. They do this thing called dry needling to you. And I immediately was repulsed by that because needles, dry or wet, are not anything I'm interested in whatsoever. But I was in pain. I knew last Sunday I was going to have to fly across the country, and I didn't just the thought of sitting in the airplane seat uh, with my shoulder, whatever. So I went, and I got this dry needling done. And I, I'll agree, it wasn't comfortable. It was rather painful. But I will tell you, it worked. It helped and uh, brought a lot of relief. And I think that as we come to this uh, text this morning, this is how it feels. I feel like I'm going back to the physical therapist for some dry needling. I know I need it, and I know it'll help, but it's not going to be fun. And I suspect that's going to be your response, too. It is if the word of the Lord really penetrates your heart this morning. J.C. Ryle, great Anglican bishop, said of this section of Luke's gospel, these things that Jesus says here, he says this, Few of his sayings are so deeply heart-searching as those we've now been considering. Few passages in the Bible are so truly humbling as these 11 verses, the ones that we are looking at this morning. Bishop Ryle was right. If we hear these words of the Lord, they will humble us and they will convict us. And I pray that that would be the result in all of our lives this morning. In the section that we just sort of finished up looking at last week, Jesus had been laying out some, some, some very challenging values. This whole section is a, a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke has given us an excerpt of it. And the whole thrust of it is Jesus comparing the values of the people who belong to his kingdom with the values of the people who belong to the kingdom of the world. And he's showing us how, how absolutely di you know, diametrically opposed the value systems are. And he's showing us that for a reason, because he wants us to understand that God's people are not like the world. And when God's people begin to look like the world, they've come a long way from, from reflecting the values that are truly values of his kingdom. And so his goal is that we would reflect on these things and reflect on our own lives and ask ourselves the hard questions. Do the values that I live, do the values that I espouse in my life reflect the values of the Lord's kingdom, or do they look more like the values of the world around me? And that becomes for us a diagnostic measure to see really where we stand in our walk with the Lord in our sanctification. And they're meant to draw us to humility and repentance before the Lord as we see how far short we fall and to draw us to dependence upon him every day as we see very clearly that in our strength we have no ability to live out these values by ourselves the 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 the, the standard is too high the bar is set too high for us to be able to simply pull up ourselves by the bootstraps and just by sheer human effort reach the standard and we saw that ever so clearly last week when he said to us things like love your enemies do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Those are hard words. Those are hard things to do. All of us know what it's like to have an enemy. All of us know what it's like to have someone hate us. 
All of us know to greater and lesser degrees what it's like to be the victim of some sort of abuse. And the very last things that any of us want to do naturally is to love people who engage us that way or to do good toward people who engage us that way or even more to pray for people who engage us that way. It's only by the grace of God that we can. And he goes on to explain in that text, you know, if you just love people who are like you, if you just love people who treat you the way you want to be treated, if you just love the people who engage you the way you want to be engaged, then you've not done anything really remarkable because everybody in the world behaves that way. People love people who love them back. People do good to people who will do good back to them. People who give, give to people who will return the favor. But as God's people, we're called to be different. We're not to be just like the world. The bar is higher. And of course, he called us to that because he, he said this is, his, this is who God is. This is what he's like. When you do these things, you're acting like him. You're being more God-like when you love an enemy, when you pray for someone who's persecuted you, than any, almost anything else you could do. Because that's what God does all the time. He's always good to people who hate him. He brings rain and good blessings into the lives of people who despise him and mock him and spurn his name every day. And when you behave that way toward people, you're behaving just like he does. You're reflecting his character. You're showing the world what he's like. And in like fashion, he turns his attention to verse 36, to this next statement, where he simply says to us a very clear principle that's short and simple on its surface. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So again, just like we're called to love those who are enemies, and we're called to do good to people who hate us, he says, you're to be merciful. And it's for the same reason. The reason we're to love our enemies is because God loves his enemies. The reason we're to be merciful is because God is merciful. So just like when we exercise love towards people who are hateful towards us, we are reflecting the character of God. When we are merciful, we are also reflecting the character of God. We're showing the world what God is like. Mercy is a characteristic of who God is. We're told this over and over repeatedly in the Old Testament, beginning in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, where the Lord descends in a cloud before Moses, and Moses is asking him, God, show me, show me your glory, your glory. Show me who you are. Show me what you're really like. And God has the opportunity to descend, and in a both visible and audible manifestation of who he is, he has the opportunity to declare his nature and his character. And God could say a lot of things about who he is, but here's what he chose to say to Moses. Here's what we find in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God is asked by Moses to disclose himself to him and to put into words what he's like, the first thing that God chooses to say, the thing that seems to be most important to him to communicate about himself, his nature, and his character is that he has, is, at very base, a God who is merciful. A God who's merciful. A God who is gracious a God who's slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. This becomes, throughout the Old Testament, sort of a, an official description of God's character. It's repeated eight times at least. Psalm 86, 
Joel chapter 2, and multiple other times in the Psalms. God is gracious, and he's merciful, and he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. He's gracious. That is, he, he pours out his blessings of good things on people who don't deserve it. He's merciful in the sense that he withholds what people deserve. He doesn't give them the destruction they deserve. He gives them good things instead. He's slow to anger. That means he's not easily provoked. He, he doesn't quickly and easily fly off the handle when people do wrong. He's abounding in love, not just any love, but steadfast love, the kind that's fierce, the kind that is loyal and that holds fast. Even when God's people fail to love him, he doesn't fail to love them. I mean, think about that for a moment. When God gets an opportunity or is asked an op- or an op- or given an opportunity by Moses to disclose his character and his nature, of all the things that he could choose to say about himself, this is what he says. This is who I am. Let me ask you a question. When you first, when somebody came up to you on the street before this morning and asked you the question, what is God like? How would you have answered that question? Would the first words that come out of your mouth have been, he's merciful and he's gracious, he's slow to anger, and he abounds in steadfast love? It's the first thing you think of when you think of God. It's the first thing he thinks of when he thinks of himself. Do you think that's the first thing that the lost world around us in our culture, in our day, thinks about God, the God that we serve? That if we were to do a survey of our community, if we were to go out in Citadel Mall, well, there's really nobody in Citadel Mall anymore. If you were to go somewhere where people actually go anymore, and, and you were to do a survey on the sidewalk, and, and, you know, find people who are not Christians, and say, you know, there's Christian people in this community that worship a God. What do you think he's like based on what you've seen in your interactions with the people who represent him, do you think that they would say, oh, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he abounds in steadfast love. God is merciful. That's who he is. He's merciful. To capture this a little bit, we need to get the difference between mercy and grace, and it's really quite simple. Grace is simply a word that's used to describe God giving us what we do not deserve. In other words, when God blesses us and we don't deserve it, that's him being gracious to us. Mercy is sort of the opposite. It's the flip side of the coin. Mercy is God withholding from us what we actually deserve. We are sinners who deserve his judgment, and so when God withholds his judgment that we deserve, that's called mercy. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is him withholding what we actually do deserve. When we sin, we deserve his judgment instantly. But God is merciful. Aren't you thankful that he withholds that judgment? Every time you sin, lightning doesn't come from the sky and zap you in the forehead. You should thank God for that. That's his mercy. When you lied last week, he should have put you on your backside on the floor immediately. That would have been justice. Actually, it would have been justice if he killed you. But the fact that he did neither is his mercy. God is merciful. He's merciful. Mercy is related to forgiveness in the Bible. The mercy of God is expressed in him withholding his judgment. The judgment that sinners deserve, God doesn't give us immediately because he's merciful. And because he's merciful, sinners can then turn toward him and not run away from him because when they turn toward him and they run to him and they confess their sin, they will find a God who is merciful, who won't judge them in the moment but will be gracious to them instead. 
He's mercy, and he's merciful. Isaiah 55, verse 7, Isaiah writes, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion. That's the same word for mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah is reminding God's people in his day that it's not too late to return to God. Even though you've wandered far, far away, even though you've rejected him, even though you've run from him, even though you've sinned against him, even though his just condemnation resides on you, you don't have to keep running. You can at any point repent and return to the Lord. And you can do that, and it is the smartest and best thing you can do because if you'll do that, when you return to him, what you'll find about him is that he's merciful. And that he'll have compassion on you. That he will exercise his mercy, his mercy, not his justice. And he'll be gracious and forgive you. It's the same message in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He's made us alive together with Christ. For it's by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us up with him in heavenly places. Paul is celebrating the mercy of God. He's saying to a church full of people who were once sinners, who had run far, far, far away from God, who had earned God's wrath, who deserved God's justice, which meant their death, their eternal damnation. And he's celebrating the fact that even though that's what they deserved, when they turned and repented of their sin and ran to God, what they found of him was a God who is rich in mercy, a God who loved them and preferred, rather than to damn them, he preferred to, to exercise his mercy and to make them alive together with Christ instead. God is a merciful God. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus simply says to us, you, as God's people, are to be merciful, just like he's merciful. That you're to show the world that your God is merciful by the way you engage other people in the area of mercy. It is a characteristic of God that must mark his people. It's evidence of the spirit of God's work within us, it sets us, again, apart from the values of the world. And it proves that we belong to him. But it's not enough to just say we need to be merciful. We need to ask the question, what does mercy look like? If I need to be merciful, if God is merciful and I need to be merciful, what, is, what does practical mercy look like when it plays out in my life? And that's where Jesus goes with this next. He, he gives us in these first couple of verses here really uh, an answer to that question. What does mercy look like? And he gives it to us in the, in the form of four commands. Two of them are positive commands and two of them are negative commands. They're all in the present tense, which in the Greek indicates sort of habitual behaviors. 
It's not a one, one and done sort of a thing. These are things that we should be doing or should be continuing to not do. In other words, the commands that he gives are not things that we need to be careful that we don't ever start doing. They're things that we're probably already doing that we need to start practicing or stop practicing based on whether they're positive or negative. So what does mercy look like? Well, he gives us the first piece in the first command. Mercy looks like, in practical sense, not being judgmental. It looks like not being judgmental. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. So the first application of what it looks like to be merciful in the world is to not be judgmental. Now, I'll have to stop here and say this is one of the most quoted verses in all of the Bible. If somebody knows nothing of the Bible, they know this verse. They probably know it in the King James Version, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged even though nobody says ye anymore, I don't think. If you don't know anything about the Bible, it's John 3.16 and judge not lest ye be judged, right? It is the most quoted and the most misquoted of all the verses in the Bible, probably, and those who quote it most often are usually the ones who understand it the least. It's misquoted by lost people and it's misquoted by Christians. When I engage people who are far from God who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and they toss this verse out in the midst of conversation, it's usually to do one of two things. It's usually tossed out and it's meant to say basically, mind your own business and leave me alone, right? When I'm talking to them about something that's going on in their life, or I'm talking about them about biblical morality or what the Bible teaches and it, be, and it starts to get close to home and it starts to heat up in, in their conscience, you know, the, the, the reflexive nature is to come out with, with some sort of a defense. And this is a perfect one time to pop out with, don't judge lest you be judged. Which is just another way of saying, leave me alone and mind your own business. You live your life, I'll live mine. Don't tell me how to live. Don't impose your standards on me. Don't tell me about your morality. Don't judge me. You're going to get judged. Your own Bible says that. Or, if it's not meant to do that, it's meant to say something along the lines of, hey, you're not so perfect yourself, you don't have any right to say anything to me. Right? Who are you to judge me? You're not so perfect. You hear it that way a lot. How many, have you ever heard, has anybody ever quoted that verse to you? Anybody? Just nod your head and I'll know. Yeah, okay, that good. you don't have to raise your hand, just nod your head. That counts as exercise this morning too, by the way. But it's not just the lost people. It's not just the world around us. It's Christians who misquote this all the time. Uh, some author, and I, I lost who it was, it called this the backslider's favorite verse. I thought it was great. And they said, you know, anytime he or she's confronted with their sin, you just pop out this verse, judge not lest you be judged. It's the backslider's favorite verse. If you can't deny the charge, just simply challenge the right of the person to hold you accountable. And you can do that by popping out this verse. It's a great one to have in your back pocket. And again, the idea is quite similar. The idea is, hey, wait a minute. Unless you yourself are perfect, then you don't have any right to say anything to me about how I'm living. And in no case is that what Jesus is teaching. On both counts, it's wrong. Listen, you and I are immersed in a culture that is dominated, really, and fueled by relativism and tolerance. You know that. 
you hear it, these messages, every single day coming at you from every direction. Relativism is the, the theological perspective of our nation. We may call our nation one nation under God, but we are one nation under relativism. That is what we are in practical sense, in every practical sense. Relativism is the idea that there are no moral absolutes, that there is no objective right or wrong, that every human being has a right to determine what is right and what is wrong for themselves. Nobody has a right to impose any particular moral standard on anyone else. You have a right to believe what you want to believe. You have a right to adopt your own moral standard, but you have no right to say that it is right and everyone else is wrong. And you have no right to walk into somebody else's world, into somebody else's family, into somebody else's life, and tell them how they ought to live, act, behave, or think. Because it's all relative. There isn't an objective right, and there isn't an objective wrong. It's just a sea of opinions. The natural outflow of that, then, becomes the virtue called tolerance. It's the natural outflow of relativism. If, if, all, if all value systems are equally valid, then we have to be responsible then to tolerate all moral systems. If they're all equally valid, then we have to be responsible to tolerate all systems of right or wrong, no matter how contradictory they are to our own. And that becomes then the highest virtue that's espoused in the culture, that of tolerance. Believe whatever you want to believe and tolerate which means, to some degree, accept what anybody else wants to believe without any sense of judgment. The most awful thing a person can do in such a culture is this, is to make any sort of definitive value judgment. So if you step out into a culture that is relativistic, that its highest value is toleration, the worst sin you can commit is to go out there and to declare some sort of a moral judgment as true and right and everything that contradicts it being wrong. You do that today and there's a new word for it. You get canceled. You get canceled. That's the word. And so the way this practically plays out is if you walk into your culture and you run across a man who wants to dress up like a woman and demand that you call him a her, you're expected to do just that. If he wants to go into the ladies' room, you're expected to open the door and issue usher him right on in. And the worst thing you could possibly do, the worst sin you could possibly commit is to point out what's patently obvious. That despite whatever self-delusion this individual happens to be living in, there is a truth. And the truth is that he is in fact not a woman, but rather a man who is pretending to be a woman. But simply stating something like that in a relativistic culture that values toleration like our own will simply get you flamed from every direction. You'll be called judgmental. You'll be flamed. You'll be banned from social media. You'll be roundly condemned on nearly all fronts. You could be fired from your job. You could be potentially sued for hate speech. Because the worst sin you could commit is that kind of judgmentalism in the midst of a relativistic culture that idolizes tolerance. And because we live in such a place, we have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean here when he talks about being judgmental? What does this thing actually teach and what does it actually not teach? It's very practical, to be frank with you. 
What this text does not teach, let's look there first, because it's used wrongly in many contexts. First and foremost, it does not teach that courts of law should be forbidden, that there should be just anarchy and no judgment that takes place in a culture. The Bible throughout establishes the validity of civil government front to back. It establishes the validity of a civil government, that there is a civil government, that it's established by the law, whether it be king or whether it be president or whatever it be in a particular context, that the civil government is there, that it's established by God, and it has a, a, a role in the culture, and it has a right to bear the sword. That is the sword of judgment. It has a right to make judgments. And it has the right from God to do that in order to do two things, in order to restrain evil, in order to encourage what is good. In order to do that, the government has to bring judgment. It has to make decisions and judge things. So Jesus is clearly not teaching that. Throughout the Bible, we're taught the opposite. What else does this not teach? It doesn't teach that we never have the right to evaluate someone else's behavior. Some people claim that it does. It claims that, it's usually how it's used, right? Judge not, that means you don't have a right to ever evaluate someone else's behavior. It's what our culture will wholly embrace that idea. But it's also embraced falsely in the church as well. No, Jesus is not saying here that we never have the right to evaluate someone else's behavior. In fact, the Bible continually calls us to exercise discernment, both in regards to ourselves and in regards to other people with whom we navigate. It calls us to that. We're to judge between truth and error. We're to judge between what's right and what's objectively wrong. Not only are we called to do that, it's the Bible demands that we do that in many contexts. This sermon, in fact, that Jesus is preaching here, this Sermon on the Mount, makes very clear distinctions about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, the values of God and the values of the world. And it makes these clear distinctions in order that God's people might make a judgment about the difference between the two. commanded to judge all kinds of things and to evaluate and discern all sorts of things. We're called by the Bible to, to, to judge who speaks for God. Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 and following Jesus said this, he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. It's a, it's a warning and it's a call to judgment. It's a call to, to beware of, of who you're listening to and who's speaking to you and who you're, who you're listening to that is saying that they're speaking on behalf of God. There are people who genuinely are speaking on behalf of God in the world and there are liars and frauds who are imposters, who are wolves that seek to destroy you. If you have any wisdom and any discernment, you better, you better judge between the two. commanded to judge sinful behavior in the life of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, a clear example of this. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, but I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is someone who identifies as a Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The idea here isn't that somebody's committed one sin that fits into these categories. What Paul is saying is, listen, if there's somebody in the body of Christ who is identifying themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and identifying himself with the church and his life is marked by habitual things like idolatry, drunkenness, swindling, greed, and sexual immorality, there needs to be judgment made in how you react and engage that individual. 
the, 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 you, don't, you don't engage them with an attitude like, who am I to judge? To each his own. I don't have any right to say anything about somebody else until I'm perfect. No. He says you make a judgment. You don't even eat with that person until they repent. Matthew 18 lays out a whole process for how the church is to, to make judgment within itself in regards to sin in the body of Christ. We're commanded to judge the doctrines that people teach. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 is another example of this. Be, be, but even, Paul writes, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Is calling someone a curse a judgment? It's a judgment. It absolutely is. Paul says, listen, if somebody comes in here and they twist the gospel, pervert the gospel, and they teach a false gospel, then you are required to make a judgment about that individual. They are not from God. They are from the enemy. They are not a blessing. They are accursed. And you're not to be shy about engaging them that way. Again, the issue isn't just live and let live. Have no opinions about anything. Let people do whatever they want to do. Who are you to judge? It's not at all what Jesus is teaching here. We have abundant, and we could go on with these examples. But I'll move on for time's sake. A final thing that he's not teaching here is that we have to be perfect in order to bring accountability to somebody else. And that just stands to reason, doesn't it? Because if that were the case, who could bring accountability to anybody? If you're here this morning and you're perfect, would you please identify yourself for us right now? Thank you. I thought my estimation was right, but I didn't want to be judgmental. We're not perfect, are we? And yet, we have a whole slew of one another's that we're to engage with one another in the body of Christ. We're called to be responsible to one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another to obedience. We are a gift to one another in each other's life in regards to sin. We need each other. We need people that are godly to come alongside us and to help us see our blind spots when we're drifting into sinful behaviors and attitudes and actions. We need people who can observe things about us better than we can observe ourselves because quite often we're most blind to our own sin and we see most clearly everybody else's. And so we need godly people to come alongside us and be accountability friends to us and to encourage us so the issue isn't, do you have to be perfect? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't hold anyone else accountable until you yourself are perfect. Now, we are to take a hard look at ourselves first before we act. We are to judge our own motives pretty clearly. We are to take a good, hard look at our own lives. And he's going to speak to that a little later in the text with a funny illustration. We are to, to not be hypocrites. That is to say, we're not to be holding other people accountable to things that we ourselves are, are continually doing. That's hypocrisy, and we're not to do that. We are to be gentle, and we are to be cautious when it comes to holding other people accountable. But you don't have to be perfect to be gentle and to be cautious. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Lest you too be tempted. So gentleness and caution. No, God calls sinners to love and to encourage and to exhort and to help other sinners. So Jesus isn't here teaching that we don't 
have a right to have civil government, the judges. He's not teaching us that we have to be perfect before we can uh, be used by God in somebody else's life. And he's certainly not telling us that we never have the responsibility or the right to evaluate somebody else's behavior. So what kind of judging then is he talking about here that we need to not be doing? Well, it's, it's captured best by the word judgmentalism. It's not just the act of identifying something, but it's a whole way of going about it. It's a whole attitude that sort of infects the heart in a sinful sort of a way. It's a sinful type of judging other people. It's marked by a critical fault-finding sort of a spirit that, that enjoys pointing out the faults in somebody else. It's marked by an attitude of harsh judgment and criticism and condemnation that takes a sort of a sick pleasure in coming alongside somebody and identifying the dark spots in their life. It's the, it's, it's the kind of an attitude that takes joy in tearing other people down, that exposes other people's sin in order to make itself look better. It's an attitude of, of, of harsh, critical, condemning judgmentalism that he's talking about here. Philip Ryken captured it best when he said this, it's to treat people unfairly or unjustly in the court of your own opinion. To treat people unfairly or unjustly in the court of your own opinion. That is a beautiful way of saying that. It's to come alongside and to look at somebody else's life. It's to watch what they do. It's to hear what they say. It's to observe them. And it's to have the whole court case play out in your head and you bring evidence against them, and you fill in the gaps where you don't have the right information, and you render a judgment and a verdict and issue a sentence without there ever being a trial. It's to treat people unfairly or unjustly. It's this harsh attitude of criticism, a critical spirit that takes pleasure in pointing out the faults of other people. I don't have to go too far with this because I think you understand the stench of this thing. You've, you've been the recipient of it in your life and this stench has infected your own heart from time to time, I'm quite sure, hasn't it? Well, what does it look like? How do we know when our judging is sinful, when it falls into this category of sinful judgmentalism? I've just put together sort of a bullet point list that we'll move through quickly here. Our judging is sinful when we sort of fall into these categories. It's sinful when we don't have all the information. When we render a judgment about somebody without all the information, when we judge quickly somebody's actions and their attitudes and their motives, and we don't have all the information, when we don't wait long enough to get the whole story, when we connect all the dots in a way that isn't clear and objective and true, we're being judgmental. When we draw conclusions and we don't have all the information and we haven't waited long enough to get the whole story, Again, Riken says about this, he says, we are overconfident in the conclusions we reach about other people's problems without fully knowing their situation. We can be, can't we? We can be convinced that we know all about somebody else's problem and somebody else's behavior when in fact we know very, very little. And we can judge and condemn somebody on very spurious information. We're judgmental when we render a verdict and judge people without all the information. Our judging is sinful when we assume the worst rather than the best. 
when we, when we refuse to give people the benefit of the doubt and we just see some little shred of something that could maybe tilt this way or that way, and our inclination, instead of being charitable, is to be uncharitable. And our inclination, rather than to give the benefit of the doubt, is to not give the benefit of the doubt and to assume the worst. And instead of being charitable and hopeful, we render a judgment that's pessimistic and uncharitable. God calls his people to be charitable and hopeful, not uncharitable and condemning. Our judging is sinful when we judge based on our opinions rather than the clear truth. That's a hard one to swallow. Because we like to always claim that our judgments are based on the truth. When quite often, it's just based on our opinion. There are a number of of issues out there where godly people disagree. There are a number of issues where the Bible is not crystal clear on a particular matter. And we all have a habit of of, of enshrining our own opinions about those things and canonizing them and exalting them and putting them, our opinions, on the same level as declared objective biblical truth and judging and condemning other people who don't see things the same way we do based on nothing more than our own opinion. When we exalt our own opinions to the level of biblical truth, we're exalting ourselves into the place of God. And when we judge people based on our opinions, we're assuming the authority and the authorization to set ourselves up as God in somebody else's life and to render a verdict on them based on nothing more than our opinion about something. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, writes about this, and he says this about sinful judgmentalism. He said, it's often practiced under the guise of being zealous for what is right. It's obvious that within our conservative evangelical circles, there are myriads of opinions on everything from theology to conduct to lifestyle and politics. Not only are there multiple opinions, but we usually assume our opinion is correct. And that's where our trouble with judgmentalism begins. We equate our opinions with truth. We fall into this category of sinful judgmentalism when we render a verdict based on our opinions rather than objective truth. It happens on a myriad myriad of levels. Practical life church issues where people get at odds with one another and judge the other based on being on separate places on an issue. It happens on theological issues where people get a a pet theological position and judge anybody who doesn't fit into that circle. It happens on how church is supposed to happen, what kinds of music are supposed to be played, what color the wall is supposed to be or whatever. Where we operate just in the level of opinion and vilify people who have a different one. That's judgmentalism. Our judgmentalism, our judgment is sinful when we judge people's motives. When we judge people's motives. Only God knows the heart. We can observe behavior. We can observe attitudes. We can hear what somebody says with their words. But there's one thing that you and I can never know perfectly. is We can never know what's going on inside someone's heart. We cannot ever fully know somebody's motives. Only God judges the heart. Only he knows the heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He's the one who's going to bring to light the things that are now hidden in the darkness. And he will disclose what? The purposes or the motives of the heart. 
then each one's going to receive his commendation from God. There's a, there's a time coming when a person's motives will be exposed, but only God will be the one to do that. We can judge behavior and words and attitudes and things we see, but unless someone states objectively what their motives are, we have to be very, very careful assuming we know what motivates somebody to do what they do and rendering a judgment based on that. We are most often wrong. Our judging is sinful also when our goal is not to build up and restore. Anytime we're judging somebody in some way, and our goal in doing that is not to build them up and to restore them, then you can know you're in the category of sinful judgmentalism. If the goal is simply to expose somebody, if it's simply to point out somebody else's sin, if it's, if it's simply just because you think they deserve something that they need to get, and you're coming at them in judgment in order that that might happen, you can know for sure that it's sinful judgment. If our goal is not to build up and to restore somebody, we need to keep our opinions to ourselves. So many times, hiding under the cloak of Christian concern, prayer requests, and all sorts of other spiritual language, we do this. We judge people. And we really don't want to see them restored. And we don't really want them to be built up. What we really want is for them to suffer. And we really want other people to know what they're like. And we see it as our goal and our responsibility to make that happen. And anytime we do it, it's sinful and it's wrong. Finally, we know our judging is sinful when we withhold forgiveness. When we come into somebody's life and we bring judgment into their world and we don't hold out to them any hope of forgiveness and restoration, when we just come with condemnation and there's no hope and there's no forgiveness and there's no drawing them to the blood of Christ and there's no bringing them to the cross where they can find hope and healing and forgiveness and redemption, it's sinful. It's sinful. I want you to pause for a minute and do what I've had to do with myself this week. I want you to look at that list and ask yourself the question, do I judge people like this? Do I render judgments about other people unjustly and unfairly in the courtroom of my mind and often out of my mouth when I don't have all the information? When I'm assuming actually the worst rather than being charitable with them? When I'm really just judging them on my opinion not something that's clear and objective sin when I'm assuming their motives when I really am not interested in them being them, having them built up and restored when I really am not interested in forgiving them when that happens in your world when that's starting to well up in your heart then you hear the words from Jesus do not judge unless you'll be judged. Because there's a threat associated with that. The threat is you'll be judged that way that you judge. When you judge people that way, when you engage other people that way, you are putting yourself under threat that God is going to begin engaging you that way. That's what's being said here. 
Is he talking about any eternity or is he talking about temporally? I don't know. I think there has application to both. I think certainly the Lord deals with us in our sin in very clear and temporal ways. He does bring discipline into the lives of his people. And so he could be saying here, and I think maybe primarily at least is saying here, when you begin to, to, to walk into this world of judgmentalism and sinful judgmentalism and you begin to navigate that way in the world, you are defaming the name of God who is merciful and not like that. You are presenting him by representing him that way in the world. You're presenting him as something that he is not. And by doing so, you are bringing yourself under the discipline of the Lord. And the Lord is going to become, begin to start dealing with you in your sin in ways that are like that. The way you're measuring it out to other people, he's going to start measuring it out to you. It's a serious threat. And I think it maybe has eternal consequences too. Perhaps... If this is the way a person lives unbroken in their life, judging others like this, perhaps it's a sign that they don't know Christ at all. And that when they stand before the throne of God in the day of judgment, instead of a merciful God, they'll find a God who's just like them. A God of wrath and judgment. In either case, living with a judgmental attitude is sinful and it's dangerous. And worse than that, it portrays God in a way that he is not, in fact. God is not like that. This list is not how God engages people. He is, in fact, the opposite of that. God is the one who knows the whole truth and the full extent of your sin and my sin. He sees the best in us, not the worst in us. He reaches out to us, not in condemnation, but in mercy and compassion. And he is quick and eager to grant us forgiveness on the basis of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sin. And he's eager to restore us to the Father and to give us eternal life. That is how God, who is merciful, engages us. And that's how he wants to engage the world. And unfortunately, that is not how the world perceives him because it's not how Christians behave, largely. God's reputation in the world is tainted by people like us who walk around with a judgmental spirit and a judgmental attitude and treat people ways that are harsh and mean and unforgiving an unredemptive. And there's no place for that in the body of Christ. There is no place for any shred of that in your heart and in your soul. And if you see it there, you need to kill the root of that sin by naming it what it is. It's not discernment. It's not a gift. It's not biblical wisdom. It's not supernatural insight. It's sin. It's pride wrapped up in a pretty package. It's anger or hatred showing up in a nasty way. It's an unforgiving spirit coming out in a practical way in the life of somebody else. And it needs to be repented of and turned from And we need to run to the cross of Jesus and find forgiveness from the God who is in fact merciful, who will be even merciful with us in our judgmentalism when we confess it and we lay it out before him. 
This is hard, this is hard words. These are hard words, right? They're hard words because they hit close to home. Because this is one of the favored sort of sins that, that sort of revolves itself within the body of Christ quite regularly. It's one of the favored sins that ro rotates itself through my heart, soul, and mind all the time. And it's one of the ones that we do battle the least against. And that needs to change. And that's what Christ is calling you to and calling me to this morning. He's saying, listen, be merciful. In your dealings with other people, be merciful because God's merciful. Don't give people what they deserve. Give them mercy. Withhold what they deserve. Give them grace instead. And that shows up in this area of how we deal with other people in the area of, dis of, dis of discernment and judgment. Matthew Henry says this, in judging and censuring our brothers, we meddle with that which does not belong to us. It's true. It's true. I want to ask you if you just bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, we come before you with these hard words. We hear what you've said. The words themselves are not complicated. They're quite easy. And they're, in fact, hard to evade, though we have many tactics. Lord, we are so quick to judge, and not in a helpful way, but in a sinful way. We are so quick to condemn. We are so quick to exalt ourselves at the expense of someone else. We are so quick to feel completely self-righteous that we're doing your work by exposing somebody else's sin. We are so quick to be uncharitable and unhopeful with other people when you've been infinitely charitable and hopeful with us. We, in fact, can be quite merciless people. And we confess, Lord, that the world around us doesn't know who you are. Not really. They certainly don't know you as a merciful God. Quite directly because we haven't shown them what mercy looks like in our dealing with them. And so we pray this morning, God, for ourselves. Individually, for our congregation as a whole. And for the body of Christ in our nation as a whole that you would make us merciful people. That we would be known for mercy, not judgment. That we would be known as gracious and loving and kind and hopeful. But we're not naturally like that. We're just not. We're prone to pride and we're prone to anger. We're prone to, re prone to resentment. We're prone to unforgiveness. We're prone to think way more highly of ourselves than we ought to. So we need the work of your spirit in our lives. We need you to forgive us for our judgmentalism. We need you to forgive us for that, Lord. Even for the way we've done that in our families this week with our children, with our spouses, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. And we need you to take out this heart of judgment and replace it with a heart of love and mercy.
that our first reflex would be mercy so that other people might see that that's exactly how you are. And they might run to you and not away from you. Oh God, may it never be. that somebody in this world runs away from you rather than to you because they don't know that you're merciful. Because I haven't been merciful. May it never be. Only by your grace, Lord, will this be true of us, any one of us. And we need it to be true for your sake and for your glory in the world. And it's for that we pray. Amen.